0: is the journalism channel of the New Books Network. I'm James Cates. Our guest today is Stephen Avella. He's the author of a new biography, Charles K. McClatchy and the Golden Era of American Journalism. It's published by the University of Missouri Press. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Uh, I-, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your background uh, and how you came here. You're at Marquette University in Milwaukee, where you are a professor of history. And uh, you tell us a little bit about your About your roots and uh, how you came to be with us in the city of
1: Milwaukee. Uh, I I was born in Chicago. I don't want to take it that far back. But my family moved to Sacramento, California about 1952, where my father was working for the defense industry. And so I grew up there. I went to public school there. And uh, uh, I delivered the beat. From 1961 to 1965, in the suburb where we lived, called Orangevale, I was the B boy, mm-hmm. and I grew that route from about fifty some customers when I first took it to about ninety by the time I, I left for high school.
0: And the paper at that time was still run by
1: the, the, McClatchy, the family. McClatchy family. Yes, and it was a it was a it was my tutorial in politics in advertising and everything about journalism that I would later come to encounter in this study. I, as I was wrapping the papers, I would read them. And Mm -hmm. so I would be, you know, I could be a a show off and show and tell. I would, I would know who the senators were. California was struggling over water issues in those days. I knew something about the, the disputes between Northern and Southern California uh, I knew something about state and national politics. I remember my most vivid memory of delivering the bee was on the day JFK died. It was an afternoon paper in those days, and the bee did not have screaming headlines except for that day. President Kennedy killed, and I remember... Uh, delivering the newspaper. People were waiting for it, and I handed it to them. Many of them had tears in their eyes as they saw the, the dead president's face on it. It was a, a sobering, sobering uh, moment, and, and one, of course, we were all transfixed by mm-hmm. everything that happened around that time. In 1965, I entered the Roman Catholic Seminary, and I began studies for the Catholic priesthood, where... I was ordained in 1979. I'm still a Catholic priest, a priest of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. And what brought me out here to Milwaukee was, um, the church. They assigned me out here to, to work in a parish, to do, and I was teaching high school. And by good fortune, I managed to be accepted at the University of Notre Dame in their, their master's and PhD program and uh, had just a marvelous experience, uh, going to school there. It was in the era of the great father Hesburgh who gave me my degree and used to see him walking around campus all Mm -hmm. the time. He was a very uh, gregarious man and uh, a man who had witnessed history himself. He, he, one of our classes, he came and talked about, he talked about being fired by Richard Nixon because he was on the civil rights commission and Nixon wanted him out that day. And, and, Father Ted told us, I just took my time. I just, (laughs) I slowly cleared out. They're not going to, you know, let them, let them drag a priest out. So he, he, he was a witness to history. Fascinating man. I got a good education. My initial interest is in 20th century American history. So that's largely what I've taught most of my academic career, but also the history of the Catholic Church. Uh, in the United States. I've written books about Chicago Catholicism. I've written about my own archdiocese here of Milwaukee. Uh, and then my interest turned back to my home region, and I began to take a closer look at where I grew up. Uh, Sacramento, for example, its history began to fascinate me, or I began to remember things from, from my childhood and, and teenage years. And uh, then I set to work, uh, writing some small histories of Sacramento. I wrote something about Sacramento and the Catholic Church, the interaction between the church and the city. It's a, it's a different experience than writing about the Catholic Church in the Midwest. But um, that's where I met C.K., Mm-hmm. McClatchy is the subject of my book,
0: and they always called him C.K. C.K. He from was the, never Charlie. Uh, or, uh,
1: well, Charlie to his friends, okay. and Charlie to his wife. And mm-hmm. uh, he 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 wasn't a fussy man. But from a, a little boy, as a little mm-hmm. boy, I read some of his earlier, let, earliest letters. In his papers were things mm-hmm. that he had scrawled as a seven or eight year old. Mm-hmm. He signed them C.K. Mm-hmm. So he was he was uh, always C.K. His daughter, his daughter Eleanor, called him Chicky. Chicky, Chicky, and, and and Eleanor were were close.
0: Now, to to set the context here, he worked essentially from the well. His career spanned the uh, late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries, mm-hmm. and these papers of uh, his newspaper empire, uh, which became the McClatchy Company, mm-hmm. starting with the Sacramento Bee, later expanding. Uh they've sort of amassed over the years and you were there there have been there was a book written about the history of the bee. You're the first person really to do a comprehensive biography of C.K. McClatchy.
1: That that came about in a very unusual way. I was actually researching the Catholic Church in Sacramento and and was using the newspapers. And what I discovered in writing coming across CK's writings, he had little columns in the paper, one called Merely Some Private Thinks. Thinks. It had a number of different titles, but that was the one that it landed on. And what I discovered was a rather unique sensitivity to certain aspects of Catholic culture. For example, I mean, he knew what the Mass was. He knew the role and function of the Pope. He understood the functions of the clergy. He, He understood, in many ways, the innards of the Catholic faith. And so I began, how did he know all this? Well, He had been raised a Catholic. His mother was Catholic, not his father. He had gone to Santa Clara, where allegedly he lost his faith. That's where he fell away from the Catholic Church. But he married a very devoutly Catholic woman, Ella Kelly, uh, who continued to uh, manifest uh, attention and loyalty to the faith. And uh, he had his children baptized. All his children were baptized. In two cases, two two of the godparents of his children were priests. So, he had this relationship with the church. He traveled abroad. He went to Rome. He had audiences with two popes. Uh, and as he traveled in Europe and other parts of, of the world, he, he had a sense of, an aesthetic sensibility about what he was seeing in cathedrals and cults and the, all this inner life of the Catholic Church, this inner culture of the Catholic Church, which wasn't always easily accessible to people who were not reared as Catholics. He knew the lingo. And so I started pulling that thread and one day the director of the archives, a wonderful man. I dedicate, he's one of the dedicators, the dedicatees of the book, James Handley. He was the, the, the head of the Sacramento city archives. He came out one day and he said, you know, we have box after box after box of McClatchy correspondence. Well, I mean, that's like catnip to a historian. Mm -hmm. Dead people's mail Mm -hmm. is catnip to a historian. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he said, would you like to see some of this? So he began to bring out these boxes for me. In them, Professor Cates, were about two hundred and eighty seven letter press books. Now this was the days before carbon paper, before Xeroxing, certainly, that when you wanted to make a copy of a paper, you had it typed, and then you sprayed it with a little water, you put it in a in a pla a, a book with tissue paper, and then you put a press on it. And then, then the the ink imprinted itself on the on the tissue paper. Well, there were 287 of these books, anywhere from 400 to 800 pages apiece. I, had, I went through every single one of them. Now, it was reflective. Those, those books were reflective of kind of the evolving organization of the bee. In the first books, you found everything from bills for lunches out to personal correspondence with his wife and his brother. His brother also was associated with him. But these papers, I venture to say, I can't say with absolute certainty, but I, they, he is among the, he is, he is probably one of the best sourced journalists, news, newsmen in American history. I, and maybe Hearst has more, maybe Pulitzer has more, but virtually every detail of this man's life is contained in that very rich and wonderful collection in the, the, the uh, Center for Sacramento History.
0: And it's, it's wonderful to find a, a, a person, a source who had very, very strong and passionate feelings and regularly poured them out on paper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: And that was, that, that's what I discovered. The original thrust of the book, uh, was to look at this uh, dissonance between his privately held beliefs, which were very intense and his public persona, which was very introverted. He was very low key person. I mean, people knew him around town because Sacramento wasn't that big a place, but he he wasn't someone who appeared regularly at parties or socials. He was not caught up in whatever social life happened in Sacramento or even in San Francisco where he traveled uh, frequently. He was very, very taken by a set of principles that were forged in some pretty critical areas. This is what I discovered as I went through his his things.
0: You know. Your your uh, uh, description toward the beginning of the book. You say his world was an amalgam of principles and passions. Mm-hmm. That was going to be
1: the original title of the book. Too. Okay, <laughs> okay. But this, the press convinced me to, to do this otherwise, or to use the Golden Age of American journalism. But um, yeah, his principles were forged from a number of sources, mostly very moralistic ones. You know, he, he was very attracted, for example, to Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. That was one of the people that he, he read and quoted. And Dickens, of course, has a very moralistic view, a very sentimental view, but very, he, Dickens is very down on people who are, are hard on the poor. Mm-hmm. He's down on religious hypocrisy. He's, he's a very, he's a critic of industrial civilization. And C.K. absorbed that. C.K. loved the theater. He was also the B's theater critic, Mm -hmm. under other pseudonyms. And he loved 19th century melodrama. He loved the good and the bad, the dark and the light, and all of that. He loved the the, the poetic language of the King James Version of the Bible. Mm -hmm. His, His columns would be replete with rather arcane biblical passages and episodes that would not have been known to... Even really Bible-believing Protestants at that time, he loved Shakespeare, especially the tragedies. It was something that stirred inside him. Life for him was was darkness and light. It was the good versus the evil. It was it was the forces of light against Belial. It was all of these things, and he would use this very rich, uh, archaic language to 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 skewer his enemies, the malefactors of great wealth, to Teddy Roosevelt, and also. To to praise his friends, there was very little middle ground with C.K. Now, th- those were his his principles; those were the things that he he prided himself on and being faithful to his whole life. But he also was somewhat contradictory. He loved the working man, but he hated unions. Yeah. He's a fascinating man
0: because, for a couple of reasons, I think. Let me give you my takeaway on this. First of all, was this was such an interesting time to be an editor? You write toward the beginning of the book; he didn't have to answer to either stockholders or an editorial board. Mm-hmm. The paper was an extension of his personality, and he was a larger-than-life kind of person. And also, to add to that, he had this, you know, sort of public facade. You know, the the, the moralizer, the um his, his friend Hiram, Hiram Johnson referred to him as speaking with the trumpets. And yet at the same time he was a very complicated and in many ways
1: very flawed man. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. He, had, he was an alcoholic, first of all. I mean that his and the episodes of public drunkenness caught the attention of of many people who saw him staggering out of the bee. or one time he got you know, he was taking the streetcar and he was so uh, loaded he his his coat got caught as the door closed and dragged him i don 't know if he was under the influence he went down to Davis to pick up his daughter at the railroad station and he fell through an open manhole he couldn't i don't know if he was in his right mind when he did that it really hurt himself, and that was really the beginning of the end for him uh, that alcoholism really troubled his brother who worked with him, who at one point contemplated ejecting him from the newspaper because he was so. So out of control. It certainly complicated life for his family. You hear very little in the correspondence about their reaction to his, to his inebriation, but they, that, you know, what we know about alcoholism and how that works, they they created some sort of a dysfunction in the family that Even their kind of sugary words and 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 affection for each other couldn't couldn't paper over. Saddest thing was his own son became an alcoholic
0: and died young. And died young. Yeah,
1: I think his son had the added problem of having experienced horrible combat in World War One. He's he's his his regiment was nearly wiped out uh he himself had come through some some horrendous battles he was a messenger that went back and forth between the front lines and the rear and was often subject to friendly fire you know, escape with his life but he saw horrifying carnage uh towards the end of world war 1 and and uh ck always believed as did his wife that what really took him down um uh, was the memory of the war, that he, he, he might have what we call PTSD. Yes. Or, but clearly he had a daddy too. He could be petty and mean and vindictive. I mean, if you crossed him, mm. you, you were going, all this prating about, you know, the gentle Nazarene, he loved to invoke mm. Jesus, he loved to invoke the gentleness and how the clergy should behave. I took that very personally, but, <laughs> but, but uh, he, he was very down on clergymen who were mean and cruel and hard-hearted, but yet he could do that too. He could, he could, could actively and militantly, but together with his brother, ruin people who got in his way.
0: They actually hired private detectives. Yes. D- to dig up dirt on their, their rivals at times.
1: Yes. Yeah, he, he got famously stung doing that. He got, he got taken for a ride. But he was, he wanted to exterminate any kind of competition in Sacramento. And there was a kind of a flaccid paper called the Union that was. It, it had been actually a Sacramento's original paper, and it, it had changed hands so many times it really wasn't wasn't as effective a force as the Bee. It never got as much advertising as the Bee. They they were more you know, business wise. They were much more aggressive. Every once in a while, the Union would fall into the hands of someone that C.K. thoroughly of whom C.K. thoroughly disapproved, and he would go out of his way to to do things to him to insult him to humiliate to go after another one of his his pet things and he was he was violently against prohibition and like you might, you might understand that because he was a drinker but also because he felt it was an infringement on personal liberty and he didn't think that he never believed that prohibiting anything would really stop it the same thing he felt about prostitution you can't prohibit it regulate it try to keep he would he would have been in that school of, of thinking Well, you know, he had friends, people who did a lot of work for him. One was a a, a freelance journalist by the name of Franklin Hitchborn, who had helped him considerably, who had helped to track down information about a bubonic plague outbreak in San San Francisco, who had been a great ally of him in a war that C.K. waged on a priest in San Francisco named Peter York. Hitchborn was a a rather upright, old-fashioned progressive, but he was for prohibition. C.K. cut him off. I want nothing to do with him. I mean, the, the only person C.K. ever forgave who just dis- dis- differed with him was his good friend, Hiram Johnson, the governor of California and the senator. The, J- Hiram could do no wrong. Hiram voted for the 18th Amendment. He voted to get it out of the Senate. And, and I, I read the letter of C.K. He oh, well, you had to do it. It was you a know, uh, complete understanding for, for his friend. Uh, but for anybody else. Who did that? You betrayed liberty. You betrayed freedom. And you, 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 you blue nosed Puritans, and and so on and so forth. Mm. So he could. He, he is his passions. You know, sometimes conflicted with his principles.
0: Mm. We're talking with Stephen Avella. He's a professor of history at Marquette University in Milwaukee. He's written a new biography, Charles K. McClatchy and the Golden Era of American Journalism. It's published by the University of Missouri Press. Can you talk about what Sacramento was like in the 1880s when the, the brothers took over the paper from their father mm-hmm. and how it grew, how it developed, what its industries were, and how the Bee uh, w- was part of this. It grew up along with the city. Exactly.
1: The Bee, the bee was begun in 1857, and the McClatchy's family, James McClatchy, C.K.'s father, comes in later as, as an editor and finally decides in the 18th, late 1860s, that he wants to be permanently part of the paper. He had dabbled in politics. Sacramento was really a mistake. <laughs> it was a gold rush city. It was an instant city, as the historian Gunter Barth would call it. And it, it grew up spontaneously as a result of the gold rush. It was a, a place where river steamers stopped, miners got off, and very ambitious merchants set up warehouses and supply depots for people who were heading into the mines in, in the Sierra. And the uh, the city kind of grew willy-nilly. And uh, eventually, by 1850, it had become an organized city with a city council of government. It, it, it encountered all kinds of early problems, governmental instability, floods. It was very low-lying, and it was inundated on several different occasions. The city basically jacked itself up. The salvation of the city, uh, Sacramento got state capital early in the 1850s. And then its big break comes at the end of the 1860s, just as this Capitol building is being finished, with the Transcontinental Railroad. It's, it begins in Sacramento. Uh, the first rails are laid in 1863, and it, it builds the Central Pacific, builds out towards the east. The Union Pacific builds out towards the west. They too, they meet at Promontory Point in 18, 1869. And Sacramento then becomes a railroad hub. It becomes an, uh, an entrepot for not only trains going back and forth across the country. Uh, it becomes a link on the way to San Francisco. But the railroad company decides to, to put a major manufacturing plant there, the railroad yards, which made boxcars, which made streetcars, which prepared the rolling stock and all that. And that uh, that became one of the main uh, economic hubs of the city. Many of the men of the city worked there. Weren't great wages but it was enough to create a kind of a solid middle class in Sacramento. Then with the railroad, of course, comes canning, becoming a kind of an exchange for fruits and grains and vegetables, processing them and shipping them out. By the early 20th century, Sacramento then begins to move into its bigger government era. The progressive era comes with a much more energetic and visible government, and so Sacramento becomes more of a government city. And then during World War II and afterwards, it becomes a hub for military installations. There were three major uh, military bases there in Sacramento that lasted until the 1990s. They were closed by the, the, the base commission. Um, every step of the way, Sacramento is redefining it. The McClatches are an integral part of that. First of all, they become rather wealthy, well-to-do, and they don't leave the city. Many wealthy people who came to Sacramento made their fortunes there Huntington, Hopkins, the people who helped to launch the Central Pacific Railroad. Uh, they all left. They went either to the East or to San Francisco. The McClatchys stayed. And the thrust of the newspaper was to identify itself with the development cadre in the city the, the merchants, the people who worked this in. in, in professional operations and professional organizations or lawyers, doctors, others, who had determined to stay in Sacramento and and contributed substantially to the upbuilding and beautification of the city. For example, the decision to jack up the buildings and to build the levees. I mean this cost a lot of money and and talk, took a lot of effort. The McClatches, among others, would be very much in favor of of that doing it, and would give it the kind of journalistic support that it needed
0: and supported all sorts of, of civic enterprises you talked about just one tree planting
1: trees was, the, yeah. was as Sacramento used to be known as the city of trees the The trees be, became a, a kind of a hobby horse for c k in particular, you know, an urban legend was that that whenever a tree was cut down, the the, the flag at the B building would be put at half staff. Now who know that and who knows if that's true. But CK wrote a lot about trees because he believed, first of all, that they provided a natural cooling. Sacramento is beastly hot in the summer. And and the complaints about the heat of Sacramento Often emanated from legislators and others who, how do I, why do I have to live there in that awful climate?
0: Of course, C.K. always told those legislators they were free to leave. That's right. If
1: If you don't like it here, he became extremely sensitive about anybody criticizing Sacramento. Whoa. Now, he would do it. He could take the city government to task. He was the he was the bane of almost every mayor in the city, and the city council was. He was continuously rehearsing circuses of corruption that were taking place: police bribery, prostitution, you know, things of that nature. He was always ferreting out what he thought were major scandals in the city. But it, woe to anybody who criticized the city, and that included not only legislators from far off, you know, people from San Francisco or other places who would look down on the city. Uh, he also took off after clergy. Whoever, once in a while, somebody, some visiting, or you know, evangelizer would come in and start calling the city Sodom and Gomorrah because it, it had a very lively red light district, and, and there was gambling that went on and all kinds of vices. And he he would take off after them. If you think you're going to come into the city in Malinus, there are a lot of good people. I mean, but the trees, he felt not only provided cooling, they provided beauty. And when he started traveling to Europe, every place he went, he took Sacramento in his head. And so he goes to Paris after Baron von Hausmann has, has redone with the great sweeping boulevards and, and sees the tree line Champs-Élysées and says, this is what we need in Sacramento. He goes to Rome and he sees the trees the, 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 along the Tiber River and he sees how the Tiber River is, is is being controlled with high levels. This is what we need in America not only the trees, but also business. He he and his brother very strongly encouraged the railroad to come and, and get settled, very active in water issues and how to make sure that water is allocated fairly. Well, one of the things that he helped to stop was hydraulic mining. They would, they would wear down these mountains up in the Sierras and it would all flush down into the, into the Sacramento River bed and then, the rivers would get filled up, and then they would flood easily, overrunning, inundating farms and and homes uh, farther down the valley. River steamers couldn't get up because it was so 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 difficult. So he he and his father began it, and C.K. and his brother Valentine continued this this uh, harangue against hydraulic mining, which eventually would be not totally stopped, but it would be carefully circumscribed by a Supreme Court decision in eighteen eighty three.
0: C.K. and his newspaper could be really good journalists when they chose to be so. The the one incident you wrote about that uh, I found sort of gruesomely fascinating was this tale of the plague in San Francisco, a few cases spreading elsewhere in Northern California, two outbreaks. Uh, the first uh, really i mean covered up not not reported on by other media and and c k sent his people in, and uh, I guess maybe part of it was animus toward San Francisco. There was a racial element involved exactly. because with this was among the Chinese population, but lifted the lid on something that was genuinely needed to be talked about and and quite an amazing case
1: it was a genuine public health crisis that um for a variety of reasons. Uh, I read a lot of what C.K. Read, wrote, and, I, and he accuses the governor and constab, you know, the, the leadership of San Francisco and also local journalists, his fellow journalists in San Francisco, uh, of covering this up. And I thought, well, that's just C.K. But no, in fact, they had decided, either formally or informally, that to, to make a big issue of the plague would, would dampen not only tourism to San Francisco, which was an important part of its uh, it's uh, it's livelihood, but also trade. I mean, what ships are going to want to come in there if they know that you know they can contract this this fatal illness?
0: And you said at at one point, even the Associated Press would not write about
1: this. Yeah, they, they there was a blackout
0: yeah. on, on this. And this earl, early in the twentieth century.
1: Yes, yeah. early in the, he he was relentless. He was a pit bull. He had friends in San Francisco. He got all kinds of you know advice, even from. Those who worked for some of his rival journalists don't tell them I told you this, but here 's what we 're seeing they found another ten Chinese dead, and uh then he also sent his own reporters in there too to to kind of ferret things out and then the u s government was involved with this too, and the the uh, there was a the navy was supposed to be quarantining this as a matter of fact they were the first ones to call it out no you can't come in here because there's they they did an autopsy on a a chinese person's body and this person had the plague we have to do something about this and he runs into all kinds of brick walls the the biggest brick wall is the governor governor gage henry gage whom ck hated he was a a former railroad official by this time ck hated the railroad and uh, so Gage was involved in this cover-up, and and others as who should have known better as well. Another one person who joins him just briefly, but also pulls his horns in is William Randolph Hearst. Hearst also gets in on this and says, "Yeah, he, he's right. There's a problem here. The Examiner is," and then all of a sudden that disappears too, and CK is kind of carrying this alone. Well, what does he do? Well, first of all, he keeps up the journalistic pressure. Secondly, he starts writing to the public health officers of a number of Western states, you know, you should be very careful about sending people to San Francisco because they could bring this stuff back to you. So, and then this this incites, you know, concern and anxiety among these various Western states. And ultimately, there was a complete turnaround in all this. I say in the book, somewhat anachronistically, a reviewer caught me on this, but the Pulitzer Prize didn't exist then. But if it had, th- this would have been investigative journalism of which uh, the, 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 he, could have, he could have won the prize.
0: We're uh, speaking with Stephen Avella. He's a professor of history at Marquette University, and he's the author of Charles K. McClatchy and the Golden Era of American Journalism, uh, just out from the University of Missouri Press. When, when we start to look at the, the progressive era, California progressivism is is a different animal mm-hmm. than progressivism in the East. There are some different issues, some common issues. A, a thread that runs all through this, of course, is, is CK's a long, long friendship with with Hiram Johnson, mm-hmm. who, as I recall, was, was Theodore Roosevelt's running mate in in the Bull Moose exactly. election, right? Mm-hmm. And CK obviously he, he became a wealthy man. He was not against the accumulation of wealth. He was not against capitalism but there were certain things like accumulation of of large amounts of wealth in a, of just a few hands that set him off and he became a progressive a crusader at least within you know certain bounds
1: exactly can you describe that i think you described it very well he his, you're right california progressivism is a, is a horse of a different color there are and progressives themselves are not a unified block we we refer to the progressive movement i teach the progressive movement and. And they they do stand for certain kinds of things: greater democratization, voting for women, public health improvement, education, things of that. These are all a, 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 an array of prohibition too is a progressive thing as well. And and so this array, this spectrum of things that you know people held on to with varying degrees of intensity or were against would represent C.K. He he was against massive concentrations of wealth and and spoke frequently and fondly about the common man a great admirer of lincoln who he believed was a man of the people by the people for the people a great admirer of a particular view of american history that was was very heroic and and very hagiographic in in many ways. And
0: very upset when people, including academics, countered him on that view.
1: Yeah, college professors drove him crazy. Uh, And and he, you know, he indulged in a kind of, you know, historiographical fundamentalism, if you will, the little red. He he was ridiculed by one of his journalistic contemporaries, Chester Rowell, who said, you have your little red schoolhouse view of history. And, um, but he was, he was deeply committed to the American way. When, when JP Morgan died, I think it was in 1950, and he says, basically, he said, good, glad he's dead. <laughs> you know, he's never, you know, he, this, this malefactor of great wealth was, was no good for anybody. And, and he took off after the rich. He took off after concentrations of power. He took off after governmental corruption. He would also be a voice demanding the reform in, in not only in Sacramento, but also in San Francisco. He so he had those kinds of progressive instincts. But again, they were always tempered. You know, he was, as I've mentioned, he was not for prohibition at all. He he felt that this was an affront to individual liberties. Women's suffrage. Publicly, yeah. He he could go along with it and he would be supportive of it. But privately, he hated the shrieking sisterhood, as he called them, of, of, of and he hated them. Not just because they wanted to the vote, but because many of them were the strongest advocates for prohibition, and he just he, you know that those two got linked in his head and said this and he 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 was uh, by our standards, he would be somewhat misogynistic he didn 't care for you know he loved his wife, he loved his daughter, he had women friends, but uh, his understandings of himself and the relationship of men and women would be quite patriarchal and he would express this on, on any number of occasions. The other thing that was added to this mix, and progressives in foreign policy are also somewhat bifurcated, some of them, like Woodrow Wilson, saw that America could, could engage in a kind of active exceptionalism, that, that our way of doing our democracy, we should make the world safe for democracy, that, that there was a kind of a missionary evangelicalism about democracy and spreading democracy and lifting people up. CK wanted nothing to do with that.
0: And you, you mentioned the word missionary. He didn't like missionaries. He hated
1: missionaries. He hated them. And, and it's interesting to read these things. I was reading the, his his blasts against missionaries in the late 19th century, and they sound today like you know uh, cultural pluralists today. Why should we assume that people in Asia have no religion, as many of you missionaries do? Well, they have a religion. You just don't respect it or understand it. Uh, he would he would speak against that. Becomes deeply deeply uh suspicious of any kind of American engagement in international affairs, particularly after world War one I. I, I think to that to some extent he's quite influenced by Hiram Johnson and all that who becomes a you know he' was one of the the dead enders when it came to the to the uh, League of nations but anything that had to do with this he he considered Europe to be somewhat decadent uh he didn't want anything to do with them and, and the idea of sending American men to die in some far off land. He he held on to that. I think at the end of his life he was changing on that as he as he noted the rise of of totalitarianism in Europe and, and, and these, these kinds of authoritarian leaders. In the nineteen twenties, CK is so distressed that progressives are gone and that the likes of Harding and Coolidge are running the country. Hates both of them and and has the most scathing things to say about them and them who support those guys. So he pr- virtually puts himself in exile in the 1920s. He takes uh, multiple trips to Europe and we're talking like two or three years at a time. He goes and stays at a hotel for six weeks and then goes to another hotel and, and sees things and writes them all back to the, to the B. It was a, you know, that was a, a an interesting
0: part of the narrative. I I found myself thinking of, you know, so many of these Publishers who, most of them in larger cities, but people who became wealthy and ended up, as you say, in this sort of, it's this sort of self-exile. Yeah. The story about Joseph Pulitzer coming back to the world office in New York and all, some of the staffers said, who is that man? And they said, oh, well, that's the boss. You know, he's back from Naples or wherever and we haven't seen him in two years.
1: Yeah, William Randolph Hearst made yeah. a lot of his great purchases, mm-hmm. you know. Ceilings from monasteries and yeah. doors and whole buildings and all of that during during that period of time they were putting their patrimony up for sale in, mm-hmm. in many of those places. But there's one incident that I think begins to unravel this knee-jerk isolationism, and it really wasn't isolationism. It wasn't it wasn't just uh, you know I, we want nothing to do with you. It's just we cannot become involved with this. He and his wife managed to get an audience with Benito Mussolini. They go to Rome in the late 1920s. Mussolini receives them into this grand, splendorous palace, I think, off Piazza Venezia in Rome. And, uh, he turns on the charm with Ella McClatchy, grabs her hand, both her hands, and kisses them. And then, then CK and Benito have a dialogue through an interpreter. And, and Benito inquires about the status of the Italians in California. And CK assures them, that they're most respected and love particularly the Vintners when they're having a hard time now because of Prohibition and and they, they both, uh, you know, they have an amiable uh, situation and, and as they're leaving well, Mrs. McClatchy is so enthralled by him as they're leaving the room Mrs. McClatchy turns around and she gives the stiff arm she says, Viva el Duce <laughs> and C.K. is standing there looking at, oh my heavens Uh, What what is this? And then you see afterwards, although he he writes positively about Mussolini and about the experience, because it was sort of thrilling for them to meet a head of state. He also begins to note this man murders his rivals, that he's running a very authoritarian regime with little regard for, for human rights and that there's going to be problems with him later. And then by the time Hitler comes along, there's never a good word about Hitler and, 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 a, a grudging understanding that this just can't resolve itself, and only. of course, he would
0: not live to see the worst. No, no,
1: he dies in thirty six. Yeah. Of course, and, and Hitler is just yeah. at that time just consolidating his power.
0: Now, now, thinking about you know, I found myself thinking of, of other eras, uh, other editors during the period, and I wonder to the extent, uh, to what extent. C.K. obviously was a was a titan in Northern California, or Superior California, as mm-hmm. he loved to call it. Uh, but he also was a figure on the state stage, because, of course, he, he was in the Capitol, and something of a national figure, too. I, I, and I wonder, you know, if, if, there's, a, if there's anyone we compare, can compare him to. I'm thinking of William Allen White. Yes. Who, with his little newspaper in Emporia, mm-hmm. but yet is known well beyond the borders of his city and well beyond the borders of his state.
1: Yeah, and, and White... White, I think, has a broader ambit. At least historians paid more attention to him than they than they did to to C.K. Uh, and, and he had a more winsome style of writing. I think what may have hindered a more robust public image would be C.K.'s kind of archaic way of writing the, the biblical allusions, the you know the, the verbal thunderbolts. It almost seems as though time stopped for him, and he he kept writing like this and. As you know, in, in studying journalism, that, that whole cool and more modern sense of writing is just the facts, ma'am. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the origins of Time magazine, and the yes. kind of writing that existed. I yes. mean, there's there's nothing tremendously emotional about mm-hmm. that. There's nothing tremendously yeah. – although it packs a punch in its own way mm-hmm. by the way it reports things. C.K.'s uh, vision, his, his sense of values, his, his morals, all of these, I think, become – Quaint. They become shrunken and they become less resonant with an evolving and growing California and, and the West. He comes to be respected, although, again, his relations with his fellow journalists are, are not always really positive. I mean, he, he cherishes very active grudges against William Randall First, uh, The Many people did. And, and he, <laughs> he hates the... The man who runs the san francisco you know San Francisco Chronicle and he comes to hate Fremont older, who was one of the ones who blew open the case of the corruption in san francisco and then th- he starts to run out of steam already in the twenties he He's anxious to turn the paper over to his son, his son comes home from World War one Carlos Kelly McClatchy Kelly they called him was a dynamo of a guy, a hard working diligent forward thinking guy. C.K. has a big split up with his brother, who had been co-owner of the paper. Bitter, bitter, the brother then essentially gives over the paper to C.K. And um, C.K. is anxious to turn over the burden to his son.
0: Yeah, his. You, you speak of his later years and a lot of this time spent abroad. A, a, a trip to Asia, you mentioned, where mm-hmm. he literally had to be taken aboard the ship. He was very because, sick. That was after uh, he
1: fell into the manhole. Yes, yeah. yes,
0: and... Uh, but certainly not not the retirement, the legacy he would have thought. His his son ran up on the shoals. He, he parted ways with his brother. Uh, that was all very bitter. It, it seems like the legacy of so many family companies. Mm-hmm. And the B, of course, expanded into Fresno and Modesto. But it was not perhaps, certainly not the uh, the, the coda C.K. would have written for his own no, life. He, he,
1: he was matter of fact, the reason for the breakup was... C.K. was insistent that his son become the editor, and his brother Valentine also had sons who also wanted a place in the newspaper, and a couple of them were very good men, very hardworking. They would have done well, but C.K. envisioned that it would be a kind of a split like he had with his brother. The brother, C.K., wrote the editorials. He controlled the news staff, and Valentine, his brother took care of the business end of the beat. although he would occasionally write and influence things. So the two brothers were not all that far apart in their basic ideas. But when the time for transition came, Valentine, of course, and Valentine's wife, uh, began to say, what about my kids? Valentine had a whole passel of kids. And, you know, we need, you know, this is our thing too. And so we need some representation here. And Carlos just can't come and take over so what are we going to do about this? Carlos temporarily settled Carlos goes down and starts the Fresno B. He doesn't take over an existing paper, although they eventually buy out the other Fresno papers. Uh, he builds a brand new building, recruits a staff and he starts to turn out the Fresno B which soon becomes the dominant paper in And
0: they they get into radio.
1: Yeah, and as that's, well. That's, that's that's also Carlos. Mm-hmm. He pushes the use of radio and and again, to, to kind of blanket the Central Valley. As a matter of fact, he could have had the whole Central... They claimed that, that he could have even had a paper in Bakersfield, which might have made the politics of Bakersfield, which are quite conservative now, a little bit different than, than they are today. And then I think in Carlos, I didn't read this, but I surmise, given the kind of belief that he had in expansionism and, and managing a lot of debt, which made CK very nervous, that he would have tried to move into the Los Angeles Area as well, and he—he, he, I don't think they would have gone into the Bay Area, but I think there was enough youth and vitality and and enough hatred for Harrison Gray Otis in the L.A. Times and the Chandlers later uh, that he could have would might have wanted to started nipping at the heels there around the L.A. growing L.A. metropolitan area and and, and to the south. So, uh, you know, C.K. in the twenties was kind of hoping that this was going to happen, and then feeling. Conflicted because he again he was terrified of the debt his son was taking on, and then also probably terrified because the man started to act out. He would go on what they called Kelly's. That his they called him Kelly It's his, his middle name, but his Kelly's were basically alcoholic binges. He would just disappear for days on end and then come back. And his wife and others, they had kids, three kids, and what it, it's they, they all kind of papered this over as far as I could see. I'm sure it caused them great grief and suffering to see this. Uh, and C.K. observed this as well. But What do we do? How do we handle I mean, think of even today the handling of people with addictions. What do we do with this? He's drinking all the time, and he's, he's incoherent, or you know, he's disappeared. Where did he go? And ultimately, uh, C.K. had to remove him. The the, the, the the binges, the Kellys got increasingly worse. He became more erratic. At one point, he even threatened his father. I'm going to tell all the secrets of the family, whatever that meant. But then ultimately, you know, he, he died very abruptly in 1933, January. They say of the flu. In one of his Kellys, he was out in the rain for a long time, and he may have gotten pneumonia and, and died. Some... Speculate that he was being detoxified, and that's a very dangerous. It might have shocked him, and and he might have died. Who knows? I was never able to get much about that. I never saw any autopsy report. His sons were still alive, and they were extremely protective. Matter of fact, when I was working on this, I was in regular touch with his with Carlos's son Jim. Fine man, wonderful man, great. A lot of information, a lot of help and assistance, and all this. He he was a bit nervous about what I was going to say about his father, and I said, "Well, really, very little, other than you know this whole episode that everybody knows about the papers and and all of that." So, if it's one of those "what if" you know counterfactual, What if Carlos had lived, it would have been a very different uh, B enterprise. I, you know, it took them a long time to buy; they bought Knight Ritter in the nineteen nineties. If Carlos had been around, and Carlos Carlos's enthusiasm had Has been passed on to another generation. I think the bee would have been bigger and more expansive than than it was. As it was, it was turned over to his daughter Eleanor, who was very loyal to her father and pursued a very progressive but straightforward. Or she didn't really go much beyond. She got into TV. That was that would have been one of her her innovations.
0: At the beginning of the book, you say that you know this is a, a a no holds barred kind of portrait of a a man who had certainly great assets and great flaws, Mm -hmm. uh, a very human portrait. You you speculate or you say at least you hope that C.K. would approve of your, Mm -hmm. uh, your full account of his life, certainly the fullest we have so far. How do you sum him up, the subtitle, The Golden Era of American Journalism? This is a time when the newspaper personified the man, and we really don't see that anymore. It's a corporate enterprise now, and it's uh, uh, and it's an enterprise, obviously, in 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 a lot of turmoil, a lot of trouble. What's your final word on CK? How, how do you look back at him?
1: His words made a difference. Here was a man who could write an editorial, skewer a local politician, advocate a, a commercial or economic advance for the entire Central Valley, and people took it seriously. It was it was a it's a time again we. You and I grew up remembering how this sort of editorializing did make a difference. And we, we experience it to some degree today in, in telejournalism and also in online stuff. I mean, let's, let's be honest. People like Bill O'Reilly influence a lot of people. I'm assuming now Rachel Maddow is, is moving into, into an orbit there where people pay attention to what she says and she helps to form opinions and, and encourages people's political predilections. That doesn't happen as much with with newspapers anymore. They continue to take stance. I think of the New York Times editorials about the Trump administration. They are as straightforward and and harsh as I have ever read. Even the Wall Street Journal editorializing at times can be very, very, very uh, trenchant. But these are kind of exceptions to the rule. Newspapers today are are shrunken from what they are. I I get to be when I'm home. I read it. Kind of reminds me of USA Today. It's a, it's a, you know, an interesting read. You go through it. I'm still a reader of daily newspapers. I have to consume that, in addition to online sources, in addition to, to, to cable news and things like that. That as I, as I can absorb it. But um, the B, Professor Cates, the B. When I was a kid, was a thick, vibrant paper. It was really, again, for me. I'll go back to where I started. This newspaper was for me a tutorial in American public life, in California's history, in um, the role and function of newspapers. The the lessons I learned there have remained with me my whole life. They fed my interest in becoming a history teacher. And I find myself now in the classroom drawing on on memories of, of what I read. But to C.K., he was probably the most important man in Sacramento's history, between 1883 and 1936, the state capital of California. Much in the city still bears the imprint of his influence from city infrastructure to clean water, to the arts, the McClatchy family, CK in particular, uh, infused into the state capital of California, uh, you know, a a dynamism that many people don't recognize, you know, that's the cow town and, you know, people still tend to, you know, poo-poo and dismiss Sacramento for me, the personal part of C.K. as I sum him up is, he loved Sacramento. I love Sacramento, I, and that's, you know, I, I understand her faults and her failings and all that, just as as he is. But I see something in this Central Valley city that is truly great and admirable. His contradictory nature, notwithstanding, I and mean, it's it, it's a it's a it's a a, a tutorial. In how history works, when you put people under a microscope, aren't we all darkness and light? Aren't we all a mass of contradictions and, uh, quote-unquote, hypocrisies? We say one thing and we do another. There, all it was, in all of those papers, in all of those many boxes of papers, there it was. A man who could speak so eloquently and write so rhapsodically about rivers and trees and and, and his hometown and California and its agriculture and, and the beauty of the state. And yet at the same time, you know, bitterly persecuted people who had really done nothing wrong and, and watched his family fall apart. I think more needs of like that needs to be done, perhaps by better historians than me, to lay bare the relationship between the personal and the public in the lives of journalists. Journalists live in the world. They're the product of their own environment, their own education, their own family histories, their own addictions, their own virtues. And that, at least in the time that these newspapers were being written, that, that mattered a great deal. There was no cold detachment from who you were and, and what you wrote. And, and I'm glad I did it. Uh, I look forward to whoever will come and continue the story and, and uh, write more about the McClatchy family.
0: We've been speaking with Stephen Avella. He's a professor of history at Marquette University in Milwaukee and the author of a new biography, Charles K. McClatchy and the Golden Era of American Journalism, published by the University of Missouri Press. Thank you so much. Thank you. Delighted to do it. This is the Journalism Channel of the New Books Network. I'm James Cates.